In the Red Sea, the U.S. Navy has defended against wave after wave of drone and missile attacks targeting vessels vital to the world economy. What we are witnessing in the Red Sea is a extraordinary challenge to freedom of navigation and global trade. It remains to be seen if airstrikes by the U.S. and allies will put an end to these Houthi attacks. The variety and cost of these weapons by the Houthi rebels shows a great change in warfare. Precision weapons, once the province of major powers, have become much cheaper and easier to produce. Iran has led this revolution, exporting these weapons to groups that range from the Houthis, to Hezbollah, and even to the Russian military for use against Ukraine. Uh, so it's quite an important spot to uh, be able to have free flow of navigation, uh, particularly for flows of energy back and forth between the Middle East and Europe, and then goods, goods from China to Europe and vice versa. The U.S. Navy has long had a virtual shield that protected its major warships. The missiles that are the cornerstone to this defensive effort are not cheap. But when you start to look at the cost-benefit analysis, and you have to do that over time, these become ex expensive you know, options. Uh, you're talking about shooting down drones that cost $20,000 with a standard missile that's a little over $2 million. They are not easy to produce in large numbers compared to the Iranian arsenal, or when looking at the Indo-Pacific, the Chinese rocket force. Yeah, there is a very real industrial-based limitation that the United States has to face. Is the U.S. Navy surface fleet prepared for future threats? At the dawn of the missile age, the U.S. Navy realized it would need a new way to defend against these high-speed aerial threats. The Aegis weapon system consisted of missile-armed cruisers that could use their advanced sensors to detect and take out threats with defensive missiles. An aerial coverage by aircraft like the F-14 Tomcat, supported by the E-2 Hawkeye, would also engage targets far from the task force. It was a cat-and-mouse game that happened in the Cold War. You know, Russia had, the Soviet Union had this, these reconnaissance strike complexes where they were trying to locate U.S. Navy battle groups uh, in the open uh, North Atlantic to be able to send long-range bombers out to hunt for them, backfire bombers uh, and uh, badgers, backfires that are still in service with the Russian Air Force at this point. The next iteration, the Aegis Combat System, took shape in the late 80s. The keystone of this was the Arleigh Burke class destroyer. That class has been around since 1989, and of course they've modernized it, but the threat's going to evolve, and as it evolves, the requirements are going to evolve. As of right now, continuing to build that class, that will eventually be replaced by a DDGX, which is several years in the future and will probably look quite a bit like the current class, only more sophisticated. As the Ticonderoga cruisers have started to retire, Arleigh Burke destroyers have become the go-to solution for sending U.S. power around the globe capable of defending themselves and others against high-tech threats, and also capable of attacking targets in the land, air, and sea domains. In the Red Sea, Arleigh Burks have become visible weapons against a war on the global economy. But the U.S. Navy may be overworked. At the end of the Cold War, the analysis said we needed 600 ships if we wanted to maintain you know, sea control against the Soviet fleet in the Atlantic, the Pacific, and the Mediterranean. There was still a trade-off there because we basically said we couldn't do the Persian Gulf. That would require more ships. Then that threat went away, and the size of the surface fleet has been gradually reducing down to about, you know, two, since 2001, 2002, it's been anywhere between 280 and 300 ships. 
Since the Houthi attacks on vessels in the Red Sea began, nearly 105 billion in ocean freight has been forced to use more expensive routes to deliver their cargo. The economic repercussions of a closed Bab al-Mandab Strait are straining the world's vast shipping industry. Uh, the Red Sea is a fairly choke-pointed area. Everybody knows who passes through the Suez Canal and when. Uh, in some cases, you know, you can see ships from, from shore. The Houthis have been attacking ships with fast boats, uncrewed ships, drones, cruise missiles, and even ballistic missiles. You don't start World War III over this, but you impose some consequences. You have a strategy that includes both defensive and offensive elements. You try to build the broadest multilateral coalition as possible. You try to encourage partners uh, to contribute, to, to lessen the security burden on the United States because we have a whole bunch of things going on around the world and we have finite resources and a Navy that's not large enough. But is the U.S. Navy in a quality versus quantity fight? We have a significant problem with ammunition resupply, which we should have learned extremely well from the experience in Ukraine. In Ukraine, the Ukrainians used up ammunition much more quickly than we expected, and they ended up putting pressure on, on stockpiles worldwide. The Chinese military has put a focus on developing long-range anti-ship missiles of many types. Sea-skimming missiles, cruise missiles, and even ballistic missiles have been tasked to inundate U.S. defenses across the Indo-Pacific in the event of a widespread conflict. As scary as the PLA rocket force is, uh, in terms of the, the weapon systems they have, uh, and the long-range ship missiles, those units by themselves can't find anything. They're just truck, they're just missiles on trucks. So something has got to find those targets for them. U.S. task forces are mobile and well-defended, and the U.S. has invested billions of dollars over the last several decades in technology to defend against mass missile attacks. This includes electronic warfare capability that can confuse or jam missiles. For example, the USS Piccany was recently upgraded with a new electronic warfare kit to help the fleet defend against complex attacks. And aerial support like FNA-18 Super Hornets and F-35s that can take out missiles launched at the fleet. I don't know the details of what all is in that electronic warfare package, but I can imagine uh, you know, it's, some, it's uh, the tools they need to deal with the really um, quite impressive missile threat that they're now facing from the Chinese military. But if the U.S. military goes to war in the Pacific, it's possible there won't be enough missiles to sustain a strong defense against a Chinese onslaught. The People's Liberation Army of China has a very mature reconnaissance strike complex, as they call it, which is a combination of land-based uh, radars, satellites, aircraft, etc., that can reach out and look a very long way, potentially. And they've got weapons that can reach out a long way, too, in terms of different types of, of missiles that they've developed. The U.S. is upgrading some of the Arleigh Burks in service, and the U.S. Navy has plans to buy nine of the destroyers through 2027 that will be built to the so-called Flight 3 standard. And the fact that they may not be keeping up ship by ship with the Chinese doesn't necessarily mean they can't it can't lead the mission, what has to be done, and hasn't really been done as well as it should have been done, is a thorough analysis of requirement. With that done, you can learn a whole lot more about where we ought to be investing. But Arleigh Burke destroyers won't be on their own in the event of mass missile attacks on U.S. forces in the future. The U.S. Navy continues to invest in new ships and new missiles, and energy weapons will also possibly change the cost paradigm with aerial engagements. And there were jokes in the past that like the, where in Star Trek they say the Klingon bird of prey can't shoot unless it decloaks or something. Uh, you'd have to turn off all the power on your ship in order to fire your directed energy weapon. 
but we're navigating some of those technological changes. And now you see, you know, lasers deployed aboard destroyers as a close-in weapon system of sorts. Uh, so a very interesting time and some real potential uh, for improvements on at least the warship side in terms of engagements. And in the short term, the Constellation-class frigate will give the Navy more anti-air capability on a proven platform. Some people like the idea of a revolutionary military affair, some people don't. Um, where I come down is that, uh, you know, uh, things are constantly changing and technology is constantly changing the way that we fight and the way we defend ourselves and the way we attack our adversaries. And uh, it certainly seems that we're in a moment of significant and relatively rapid change. Advances in short-range air defense should bring down the cost per interceptor. The Navy has thought seriously about how it will deal with air threats and significant and large numbers of air threats, which would it could include, would include ballistic missiles. And the other part is, it's a world war. It, it would, anything that happened would likely spread to other regions. And I think that's one of the things with, that the Red Sea sort of demonstrates to us is we never know when the maritime threat might come up. And we have to make sure we have sufficient force structure to meet that. That is going to be the real challenge of the next decade.